Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Stephen Hupp to discuss pseudoscience in the field of mental health. Stephen is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville and a licensed clinical psychologist. He obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from Louisiana State University. In 2023, Stephen was named the new editor of Skeptical Inquirer, the magazine for science and reason. He's published several books about the science of psychology, including Investigating Pop Psychology with Richard Wiseman, Pseudoscience and Therapy with Cara Santamaria, Great Myths of Child Development with Jeremy Jewell, and the forthcoming Investigating Clinical Psychology with Jonathan Stay. One of my big takeaways from our conversation was that there are varying degrees of evidence in the universe of the mental health treatments we see in practice today. Just because a specific treatment exists and is practiced by a licensed professional doesn't mean that the scientific evidence behind that treatment is extensive or robust or in some cases exists at all. This realization doesn't necessarily call into question the motives of mental health practitioners. Most mental health practitioners want to help individuals overcome challenges they're facing in their lives. They will use whatever tools they think will be beneficial and will rely on their clinical experience to do so. But I think it is important for practitioners and patients to be skeptical of treatments that seem implausible and for patients to feel comfortable asking questions about the evidence supporting specific treatments. Another interesting takeaway I had from our discussion was that measuring outcomes in mental health and therapy is a very complicated venture. There is often a knowledge gap between mental health researchers and practitioners. One of the consequences of this fact is that sometimes practitioners see effects of treatments before understanding the mechanisms driving them. Simply put, not all treatments work the way we think they do. And the only solution to this is demanding an established body of scientific evidence early on before designating treatments as best practices. This episode is essential for mental health practitioners wanting to learn about fringe treatments, but it will also be helpful for consumers of mental health services and anyone curious about which ideas are based in fact versus those that are just plain bogus. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Stephen Hupp. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, I'm excited to get a chat with you. Uh, so Stephen is the editor of Skeptical Inquirer. And today we're going to be talking a lot about specifically pseudoscience as it relates to mental health. And without giving a full sort of dissertation on the difference between science and pseudoscience, 
Uh, for the listeners, pseudoscience typically refers to practices that may have a little bit of research evidence, but maybe it was poorly done uh, or had questionable conclusions. Maybe it doesn't have any scientific evidence at all. Um, maybe it has scientific sounding terms, but those terms are poorly defined. Uh, these are sort of the features of pseudosciences. It's kind of sometimes hard to define. And we know that pseudoscience is, there are lots of examples, well-documented examples as they relate to uh, the medical field in, in terms of the standard medical practices. But maybe less focus has been on the pseudoscience in mental health. And so we're going to talk a lot about examples, some very specific examples of pseudoscience and mental health. But Stephen, maybe first, could you talk a little bit about some of the added challenges uh, for discriminating mental health or uh, pseudoscience versus science in mental health? Because, you know, in regular medicine, if you, you know, let's say you have a headache, you treat the headache. If the pain goes away, you can say, oh, it worked. Uh, but in mental health, it's a little bit more complicated. Maybe you, you're going to therapy for a long time. Maybe you're making in incremental progress. So it kind of gets harder to differentiate between effective and non-effective. So could you talk a little bit about how we can d better discriminate pseudoscience versus evidence-based practices in mental health? Yeah, I, I think you described pseudoscience well. You know, I like to think of it as a continuum between science and pseudoscience and just different claims have different levels of support. And so some claims have a tremendous amount of support. Other claims have no support. Some claims might be somewhere in the middle, as you as you described. Uh, and mental health is especially tricky, uh, first of all, because it's a newer field. I mean, like physical health medicine has been around for so much longer whereas the mental health field is just relatively a, a, a pretty new field. And so we're just now having to deal with some of the problems of pseudoscience that have plagued the medical field for much longer. Um, and in their case, uh, they're often dealing with types of physical illness that have clear objective measures. You mentioned pain. Pain is actually one of the trickier ones when it comes to physical health because it's largely based on a subjective, uh, you know, a subjective rating. Whereas a lot of physical health uh, issues, there's a clear biological indicator, uh, like how much how much sugar is in your blood would could be a very clear indicator of how good your treatment for diabetes is is working. And mental health is really largely based on subjective issues. How depressed do you feel? How anxious do you feel? Um, and so the more uh, issue is uh, subjective, the more open it is, I think, to being susceptible to pseudoscientific claims. Now, is there a uh, is there a sort of common source to some of the more pseudoscientific mental health treatments? And what I mean by that is in physical medicine, as you put it, you know, there's a lot of uh, ancient, ancient remedies that often find their way surviving over the course of time, you know, just thinking acupuncture, for example, it's these, that, that, that these ancient remedies 
are they they live regardless of whether the evidence supports them or not. Uh, do you do we see similar patterns in mental health, or are the the origin of of these pseudoscientific practices a little bit different? There's certainly a lot of overlap. Uh, some of those same ancient practices for physical health have been applied to to mental health. Um, but, you know, I just think another just common source is word of mouth, people's anecdotes, uh, people heard something worked on TikTok or elsewhere. And it's just a lot of word of mouth about what works. So I have a question about clinicians. But before we start getting into sort of the the individual types of treatments that don't have very strong evidence, I've I've spoken with a lot of clinicians about how they view the scientific body of evidence as it relates to therapy. And one of the things that I've heard before is uh, specifically a clinician saying that, you know, they, they observe a pattern as they're dealing with their clients. And that pattern makes them focus, uh, focus their treatment a little bit. And it sounds very improvisational. In other words, they're not actually, the clinician isn't going off of a textbook treatment. It's sort of based off of how they feel, you know, what will benefit their patient the most. And oftentimes that, that makes me feel uncomfortable because it, it seems as though they're trying something that isn't evidence-based. Do you think there's something wrong when a clinician is trying something that they're, when there's no evidence backing it? Or is it more the case that clinicians are allowed to improvise a little bit and fit their treatment to their, their patients? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's some room for both approaches. Uh, I don't, necessarily think every single thing a therapist does has to be strongly rooted in science. Uh, but of course, I do think that that's usually the best starting point is something that's been well-researched uh, and replicated uh, and can, and a lot of variables controlled for is usually going to be your best starting point and your best framework for dealing with whatever issue you're dealing with. But, you know, there's got to be some room for trying new things and um, just dealing with things as they come up. You can't always plan for every moment that comes up in therapy. So sometimes you just got to, in some ways, fly by the seat of your pants and just be a supportive uh, partner in the, in the relationship. So I think there's some room for experiment during therapy, but really the guiding principles are going to be best when it's evidence-based. That makes sense. Uh, so let's let's jump into some examples. Um, out of all of the areas that you see pseudoscience creeping into mental health treatments, are there are there one or two really popular ones that that are are just seen more common in mental health treatment than others? Well, there's so many examples, and sometimes it's hard to just pick some. But I I'm often uh, one of 
the people that has influenced me the most is Scott Lilienfeld. Uh, and he's written a lot about science and pseudoscience and psychology. And uh, one of the areas he's focused on is writing about potentially harmful treatments. So not, mm -hmm. not just treatments that are ineffective, but treatments that have been shown to actually cause harm. Uh, and that, I think that's a good starting point for where therapists should try to avoid doing those types of treatments. Uh, and so one example of uh, treatment that Scott Lilienfeld labeled as potentially harmful would be uh, recovered memory techniques, um, where you might use hypnosis to try to help somebody recover a, me or a memory that they feel like has been repressed somehow. Um, and that can be really harmful because people are very likely to create false memories during that experience. And those false memories can sometimes damage their relationships. So let's talk a little bit more about recovered memories. Cause uh, yeah, I, I think it, there's a little bit um, of overlap, I think with this, I, I know I've, I've read a little bit about past life regression a little bit. I, I, it sounds like a similar type of, idea where um i guess at the core the the clinician is is driving the the details and it's and it's creating the feeling that the patient is coming up with them but they're not is that is that sort of how it's, it works well i i like to hope that uh past life regression therapy is not something that's being used too much but i know that it is being used and um yeah it, so with with typically with recovered memory techniques, you're trying to help them recover memories from earlier in their life, perhaps their childhood. Uh, in the case of past life regression, you're helping them come up with memories from their previous life. Uh, and it really gets into the level of just untestable hypotheses and is far from science because it's just not something we can test in any experimental way. Is the issue with the recalled memory uh, problem or, or that treatment in particular is, is the do patients find it th that it makes them feel good and that sort of creates this feedback loop of so if the clinician is is sort of prompting them to think about past memories to try to explain some sort of current malady you know, malady um i can see that if it if it made the patient feel good, then that would perpetuate the practice, regardless of whether the memories they're coming up with are true or false. You know, you know, you recall spontaneously in therapy, you know, you know what, my, my, my mom did leave me at the mall that one time. And that does make sense. You know, and, and it does sound, yeah, it sounds uh, problematic, but I can see there being some sort of emotional release or like a false sense of accomplishment and insight. Yeah, I think if uh, if even if I'm struggling in a particular way and I'm able to say I'm struggling because something happened to me and this thing that happened to me wasn't my fault. And so now I'm struggling. It makes me feel a little bit better if I can just put some words to like what caused me to do to to feel this way or or to do these behaviors. And so, yeah, I think you're right on that. It creates this loop of, hey, we've we figured out why I'm this way now and it makes me feel better because I have an answer and it was something that somebody did to me. And I, I like you, uh, you did an Elizabeth Loftus shout out with the 
the mall example and uh, that a lot of her research was based on creating false memories of being abandoned in a mall. Yeah, that's it's a it's an interesting line of work. Uh, so adjacent to kind of what we're talking about, um, one of the examples, and I'll I'll, I'll mention again uh, uh, the book that you co-edited with Cara Santa Maria is called Pseudoscience and Therapy: A Skeptical Field Guide. And uh, I was I went through that before uh, this interview and. Uh, I noticed that there was a little bit of discussion around the topic of psychoanalysis, and it brought up to me a, a much more broad issue that relates to therapy, which is if you talk to some clinicians, they tend to have a, a focus that is either more on understanding the past versus focusing more on the future now or, or focusing more on the immediate behavior now i'm oversimplifying it completely but it does seem that there are some philosophical differences as it relates to you know digging into your past and understanding why that might contribute to current patterns of behavior um what do we know about the about the clinical evidence that underlies uh, the subfields like psychoanalysis and and going deep into uh, potential patterns of behavior. Well, I, I come from this with my own bias, so I'll just put that out there. And you know, I was trained as a behavior therapist and a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, I was not trained in psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy. Um, <clears throat> I'm been a professor for over 20 years now and uh i'm trying to keep an open mind still uh even though i know these are really very opposed ways of doing therapy and uh, there are times when i'm finding connections and overlap between how a psychodynamic therapist might work and how a cognitive behavioral therapist might work in fact i think there's a lot more overlap than a lot of people acknowledge um but i have written critically a lot about especially traditional Freudian therapy. Um, you know, early early Freudian therapy involved things like dream interpretation uh, that really have no research support in terms of a treatment. Uh, I have seen a little evidence for modern day psychodynamic therapy. Like if you go to um, Division 12 of the American Psych Association, you go to their website, uh, they currently are labeling short-term psychodynamic therapy for depression as having modest uh, research support, uh, not necessarily strong research support, but modest, which, you know, another word for that in their language might be called probably efficacious. So some research to support short-term psychodynamic therapy. Um, so, and, and I think some specific areas, there can be some benefits to psychodynamic therapy, but that doesn't necessarily mean every aspect of the therapy is uh, helping uh, contribute to those benefits. And of course, one big issue we have to deal with in both cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy is some of those common factors, just like a good therapeutic relationship, for example, can go a long way to help somebody feel better. I mean... At some point, wasn't there a big insight related to comparison of the different types of therapy such that if you, from a statistical standpoint, the relationship with the therapist trumped any sort of specific subspecialty? 
Uh, well, John Norcross has been a, like a leading voice in looking at some of those common factors like that. And those often can emerge as some of the, the most important factors. Uh, in addition to this pseudoscience book, you've mentioned uh, Dave Tolan and I will have a book coming out soon called Science-Based Therapy. And it's uh, it's meant to pair with the pseudoscience book. It'll cover all the same topics in the same order. And the very last chapter of that book, uh, we had, well, the second to last chapter, I guess, but we had John Norcross write the chapter on some of those common uh, elements and uh, relational elements in therapy, like therapeutic alliance. And so um, a, a lot of therapies are going to have that kind of built-in uh, aspect that is going to help out. Uh, and so then after that, we're just trying to figure out what are some other components we can do to make the therapy even better. Were there were there any trends in terms of how outcomes were measured that have contributed to differentiating between evidence-based and non-evidence-based treatments? Because I feel like how you measure the outcome almost becomes everything in the sense of even if you're looking you know, one year into the future versus five years, or if you're looking at internal self-reports versus uh, objective measures of behavior, I feel like you could get completely different results, all depending on your method of analysis. Were there any key moments uh, in terms of how treatments were measured that 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 either you know maybe eliminated uh, one specific treatment and said you know we 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 didn't see anything for this even though we did see some evidence with prior studies well i think one key moment and probably the biggest key moment was just the idea that we should be trying to measure these things um you know freud wasn't really doing research he wasn't really measuring the effects of his treatment on people he was reporting them in case studies but not in any type of systematic way um and so the behaviorists were the ones who came around and started saying hey let's focus primarily on observable behaviors that we can measure and report on if our treatment is working or not. So that was a really big advancement is just the idea that we should be measuring these things. Um, you touched on some things like, do you look at like treatment or uh, treatment gains right after therapy or a year later or four years later? Um, and that's been an evolving situation in terms of what we're looking at. So I've always embraced uh, what Division 12 did with coming up with criteria for what should be called an empirically supported treatment. And in their original criteria in the 90s for identifying what's empirically supported, they didn't have a requirement about how long uh, the treatment effects would have to last. Uh, one reason I partnered with Dave Tolan is because he created these, he and his team uh of co-authors created a new set of criteria that include, uh, in order to be called a very strong treatment, there would have to be some evidence of lasting treatment gains uh, for a certain number of months. Uh, and so we are getting, I think, better at identifying not just if a treatment works in the short term, but does it work in the longer term? Now, another area in mental health treatments that you sometimes see pseudoscience creeping in relates to uh, diagnostic tools. Um, in the book, you've, you touch on the Rorschach test, the classic inkblot test, and what we can gain from that. 
Um, I'll open it up to even personality tests, you know, depression inventories, or, you know, there are lots of questionnaires that we use to, uh, to measure, uh, mental health. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about any, any diagnostic tools that, that you've come across that are dubious with respect to their effectiveness in diagnosing and measuring different constructs? I mean, you started with the Rorschach test, and and that's a fun one. Uh, we had uh, James Wood and some of his co-authors write a chapter in another book called Investigating uh, Clinical Psychology, and the whole chapter was about the Rorschach. And uh, he, he previously co-authored a book uh, with Scott Lilienfeld uh, uh, that was called What's Wrong with the Rorschach? And um, the take-home point I've learned from them is that the Rorschach can do a couple things. Uh, it can give you a sense of somebody's intelligence. It can give you a sense of if they might be on a, the schizophrenia spectrum or not. And it can't do much more than that. And in fact, we have way better tests to measure someone's intelligence or to determine if they meet the criteria for schizophrenia or not. And so uh, there's really a whole lot wrong with the Rorschach in terms of, of being a diagnostic test. Um, it's a projective test. And so the idea is you're projecting into the unconscious of somebody or they're projecting onto the test from their unconscious things that you wouldn't be able to access through their conscious. And an another type of projective test you didn't mention is projective drawing. So like the house tree person drawing is, is uh -huh. one example. Um, and people have very detailed systems for measuring what's going on in people's drawings. Do they draw the hands big or the hands small or the eyes big or the eyes small uh, are all different things that go into the test. And really both of these tests struggle and all projective tests struggle with research showing that they can be valid, used in a valid way to, to make judgments about people. Yeah. These, uh, you know, that projective drawing test, it, you know, one of the things that they, they seem to have in common, these types of tests that, and, uh, you know, dream interpretation or something like that is that is that there, there's always this kind of compelling just so story. Like notice how you drew yourself here and then the family is way over there. Why are you so far away from the family? <laughs> On the surface, it just it just intuitively feels like the story makes sense. And that that you know, the average person, I, I don't think that they're like, I think that's, that's where the curiosity stops. It's like, well, this is, this tells a neat, neat little story. Yeah. Another example I'm thinking of now is handwriting analysis. Uh, and so, you know, one example in handwriting analysis is if you write with extra space between the letters, then that means you need, uh, you, you need more interpersonal space. <laughs> and the, the logical fallacy is called reasoning by representativeness. So you find some similarity there, like space between letters and the need for interpersonal space, and you make a connection there. And that's often a problem with a lot of the 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 psychological myths that a lot of people believe is that the human brain is just so good at making connections between two different constructs, even if there is not a real connection between them. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, 
one of the gold standards of treatments, uh, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it seems as though there's sort of m mounting evidence in favor of CBT for specific out for specific treating specific uh, mental health illnesses or um, conditions. Overall, if you had to summarize the effectiveness of CBT, uh, is there is there any area that it that that you see clinicians sometimes overstepping or is the evidence consistently showing a benefit regardless? I think overall, when you look at what are empirically supported treatments, quite often CBT rises to the top. Um, you know, as I've been working with different experts in specific fields, I've learned a lot more about CBT. Um, and so sometimes I don't like to call it cognitive behavioral therapy. I like to call it the cognitive behavioral therapies because it's not just like one approach. And so like I've had, uh, I guess Dean McKay wrote a chapter for us about uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, he made the case that like a specific types of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, with an emphasis on exposure with response prevention uh, are effective for uh, OCD. But if you just do generic CBT, that is not necessarily effective. Uh, and so there's a lot of specific tailored types of CBT for different issues. Another one is uh, kind of behavioral therapy for insomnia is like a very specific uh, CBT approach to, to sleep problems. And so I think that is one danger is that people think that just any generic CBT can be effective for everything, uh, when in fact, uh, it's not necessarily effective for everything. And um, it's usually most effective when it's tailored to specific issues. But even in the in the best case scenario, it's not going to be effective for everyone. Uh, and so we do need to keep an open mind and consider other possibilities as well. So anxiety is one of the common targets of CBT or one of the CBT therapies, as you put it. Um, when you look overall at clinical treatment for anxiety, and then all the way into sort of the um, anecdotes, what people report helps their anxiety. Uh, do you see any specific pseudoscientific practices that are are common that people, you know, incorporate in their lives that they that they report helps their anxiety? As I ask that, it 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 makes me wonder if you know some of the things that people try on their own ends up working based on the placebo effect, but I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not a clinician, so I'm curious as to what you see, if you see any common practices that people use to treat their, their own anxiety that doesn't have a lot of evidence. Well, I think one of the most common things people do to deal with their anxiety is to just try to avoid their anxiety. And so, you know, some of the things people might do to relax themselves, which can be healthy, you know, trying to engage in relaxing activities. But if you're engaging with those relaxing activities in order to avoid dealing with the things that are making you anxious, then you could actually make the problem worse. 
Uh, when it comes to anxiety disorders, avoidance is like the worst thing you can do. And, and that's what can make normal anxiety become a diagnosis and start to interfere with the quality of your life when you're starting to avoid it. So maybe you are uh, socially anxious, uh, as is common in the college students that I've worked with. Um, and so because you're socially anxious to deal with that, you maybe do some relaxing things, but you also avoid going to a party or avoid going to a friend's house or avoid taking classes where you might have to give a speech. And though that type of avoidance actually just feeds into the anxiety and makes it worse. Is there any, uh, have you found any specific techniques for sort of breaking that mindset? Because, I mean, this is a theme outside of just treating mental health conditions. This is a, a theme that you see in lots of areas, uh, you know, podcasts on motivation, articles on motivation, this idea of moving towards challenges versus avoiding challenges. Um, the, the information's out there. It, it's become more and more prevalent, the idea that we need to challenge ourselves and and expose ourselves to these things in order to make them better. But there's there's always something lost in translation where people cling to the the, the soothing behaviors. Um, do you have any thoughts about how to, the, anything that you found effective at sort of convincing people to focus more on these uh, moving towards challenges? Well, I do think about this a lot, and, and it's partly, I think, a branding problem. Like, uh, I'm often promoting exposure therapy, but I think the term exposure therapy is kind of scary to people. And just the idea of if you're anxious about something, we're going to give you more of that thing somehow yeah. in therapy. It's not really... Or approaching pain. Like, you know, you try to... It's like, you have to be uncomfortable. It's like, no, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And so this circular conversation of, you know, I want to be more comfortable. Why would I make myself more uncomfortable. Right, right. I think the best way, uh, so I do think we need to think about the branding of it. Um, and it, really the best way to approach it typically is gradually and systematically, you know, so you start off with approach behaviors that are really fairly easy to do and just provide a little bit of anxiety. Um, in the case of when I've worked with college students with social anxiety, I often give them homework assignments to do things like uh, go to Walmart and just go buy a pencil or something cheap and go through the checkout lane and actually go to the checkout lane where there's a person, <laughs> don't avoid the person, and then just make one statement of small talk with that person, which is something I as a person have always avoided doing uh, through much of my life. I avoided making small talk with like the checkout lane people. But since I started giving that assignment to my patients, um, when you give assignments like that, you have to be willing to do them yourself. And so then now there was a time in my life where I had to kind of force myself to make small talk with strangers in public as, as part of doing that. And, you know, if you just start off small with something little, it gets easier and easier. And so now I can do it all the time to the point where it, it like embarrasses my, my teenage kids when they're with me because <laughs> they don't want me to talk to to strangers uh, or whatever people in the checkout lane. But um, it's really all about starting off in a manageable step and not starting off with something that's that's terribly hard to do. Now let's talk about trauma for a moment. And the 
reason that I find this area interesting is specifically related to social media. As somebody who uh, uses TikTok on occasion, watches videos, uh, I, I get served a lot of mental health videos and the there are lots of accounts that feature uh, individuals that are talking about trauma. And in some cases, you know, you don't see psychiatrists, psychologists, you see some of these terms like trauma informed specialists, or, you know, I'm being intentionally vague. There, there a lot of, a lot of the titles for these individuals are, are vague. And it made me think that this might be a rich source of pseudoscience or, or individuals that might be advocating treatments that are just sort of based off of their gut and, and not really grounded in evidence. Uh, do you, uh, do you see social media contributing to, uh, to pseudoscience and the spread of some of these bad ideas? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's happening. I'm not on TikTok. Sometimes I feel like I should be on TikTok just to see some of these things you're describing myself. Um, I'm a Twitter guy, although now I've been forced to become an ex guy. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts, but I'm not watching a lot of videos on on there either. Um, I do hear the word trauma being used in lots of contexts these days, and I don't really take issue with the word trauma, but I do think sometimes it gets conflated with like what they're really trying to say as a diagnosis of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think sometimes it's, it's inappropriately conflated with PTSD. So we all experience, we all go through traumatic experiences from, from time to time. Um, or if you live long enough, you certainly will. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily equate to uh, disorder. And so, you know, we, we all have some of the symptoms of PTSD uh, from time to time, but that doesn't equate to a disorder unless we're having several symptoms that are interfering with the quality of our life. And so I do worry that in social media, sometimes people might be making the shortcut from the word trauma to represent PTSD and then lead to treatments that aren't really evidence-based, even though we, we do have several evidence-based treatments for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I've seen EMDR talked about a little bit, uh, eye movement. Oh, sorry. I don't actually remember what it stands for, but I know it's related to eye movement. Um, uh, what is what is the, the claim of EMDR and does the evidence actually back up the claims? Yeah, so um, EMDR is one we, we talk about in, in the book, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, and so EMDR is one of the trickiest ones to deal with because uh, EMDR is often used for PTSD. Uh, it's more and more being used with other types of anxiety-related disorders and, and other disorders. Um, but a big part of EMDR is doing some form of exposure therapy, you know, either talking about the traumatic experience you've been through or thinking about the traumatic experience you've been through and both talking and imagining, uh, thinking can all be types of exposure. And so 
uh, EMDR is doing some exposure therapy, and we know exposure therapy is a key component to evidence-based treatment for PTSD and uh, other anxiety-related disorders. Um, now, on top of the exposure therapy, they layer these sideways eye movements, and you do though, you know, look left and right multiple times. You follow oftentimes the therapist finger back and forth while you're thinking about the distressing emotion that you're having. And so while you're doing the exposure, you're doing these eye movements. Um, one example uh, that uh, we've taken from Jerry Rosen is uh, a metaphor he came up with called purple hat therapy. Uh, and uh, he came up with this metaphor as related specifically to EMDR, but we could probably relate it to some other things too. And so the idea is, let's say you're doing uh, CBT with a patient for something and it's working, but you say, hey, we're not going to just do CBT. We're going to do purple hat therapy where you do CBT while you're wearing a purple hat. And lo and behold, the person gets better. But it wasn't really the purple hat that helped them get better. It was the CBT. And the purple hat was not a necessary component. But yet the therapy's labeled after the purple hat. And now they've created a new therapy. And now they can charge people to get for training on how to learn this new purple hat therapy, even though the purple hat's not an important component. And so that's the metaphor with EMDR that the eye movement part, which is the main featured part in the title of the treatment and a big part of the treatment is really a non-essential component. I am so glad to hear you say that. I, I've been trying to crack this EMDR thing for a while and that makes it very clear. It's one of my pet peeves with all with, and you. It's, it's surprising how often I see it today. Uh, this these studies that clump multiple manipulations within their treatment group. Um, you know, sometimes you see it with mindfulness. You, you know, your 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 treatment group is mindfulness plus A plus B plus C. You you definitely see it with with certain types of supplements where you you buy this uh, you know 5 hour energy or something like that and it's got this long list of herbs and other ingredients and then oh look there's 200 milligrams of caffeine yeah, right. it's yeah. it's like that's okay so you're selling caffeine with branding and proprietary ingredients uh, yeah. i i'm i was i'm i'm surprised to hear that EMDR is is appears to to be in that category and that's where like dismantling research studies come from where you can take a treatment like that and try it with and without different components and see what works and the dismantling research that i've seen on emdr is it works just as well if you don't do the eye movements if you do the other parts of it and so the eye movements are not really adding anything um, I credited Jerry Rosen, but he wrote that article with Jerry Davidson. So Davidson, so I want to give him credit too. And I'd also like to point out that book uh, that you referenced, Pseudoscience and Therapy, is purple for a reason. <laughs> That's great. Um, so let's pivot to another another treatment that I know has lots of lots of anecdotal support. Uh, again, I've seen on social media a few people. Uh, talking about hypnosis 
Uh, obviously, there's a distinction between stage hypnosis, the uh, which is mainly for entertainment purposes, and hypnosis in the context of a clinical treatment. Um, I I also uh, have some friends that that practice hypnosis in their in their therapeutic practice. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what hypnosis is supposed to be and if there is any evidence of its effectiveness? Well, I'm glad you distinguished between stage hypnosis and then like hypnosis used in therapy or hypnotherapy. I mean, just to put the stage hypnosis to the side, uh, stage hypnosis is complete uh, a complete trick. And, you know, the 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 comedian basically on stage is is purposely selecting people that are willing to play along with the act and do those things. And they tend to be more outgoing. And if they're not good at going along with the act, then the hip, the stage hypnotist just kicks them off the stage and just keeps the people on the stage that are good at it. Um, I recently read Mark Twain's uh, autobiography and, and he talked about a hypnotist coming to town and, and how he faked, uh, putting on a good hypnotism show for the stage hypnotist for the town. So uh, Mark Twain is is a go-to for me when it comes to things like hypnotism and mesmerism and and, and snake oil. Uh, he's fun to read. But um, hypnotherapy, um, I'm still I'm still on the contemplative stage on trying to figure that one out myself. Uh -huh. uh, so um, one author uh, that's really been an influ influential figure in my life is Stephen J. Lynn. Uh, so he he's he worked a lot with Scott Lillianfeld. Uh, they wrote uh, 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology together and, and several other things. Um, and he deals a lot with uh, dissociative disorders, and he also is a proponent of hypnotism, and, and I've got a lot of faith in him. I personally have a hard time understanding how, how hypnotism and hypnotherapy is different from just any other type of relaxation training, uh, and I do have some confidence in relaxation training. I think when hypnotism is used in hypnotherapy, and I've never used it, but I think when it is used, it's basically like a relaxation training plus su some suggestion, the power of suggestion layered on top of that relaxation therapy. And so, you know, I'm interested in seeing more research and learning more about how hypnotism works, probably for a very small select group of things like maybe pain management um, maybe smoking cessation, um, you know, maybe a very narrow limit of things. I'm holding out uh, an open mind that hypnotherapy could be effective for a small number of things. We do have a, a chapter on hypnotherapy in our book, um, Investigating Clinical Psychology. Uh, and I, I'm trying to, to get a handle on it. But uh, for me, the verdict is still out. But some of the people I really respect do, do seem to have some evidence to support it can be effective for a limited number of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it is hard to sort of wrap, especially when it comes to, you know, the smoking cessation, you, you would assume that, that, so, that these are very strong urges and the anecdotes for hypnosis are just a couple sessions. And you see these, I, I mean, Obviously, there are problems with using sort of celebrity accounts of treatments. There's all kinds of problems there. But when you hear people talk about hypnosis, it's it, it it's, you know, I've two sessions and I don't do it anymore. And 
it, it seems as though it, it, that either a they they were basically already motivated at their peak level to stop, which then you know the the therapy is irrelevant, you know, and they they would have stopped anyway. And then, as you mentioned, I wonder if if the hypnosis treatment and relaxation kind of is instilling some sort of mindfulness practice, like they're, they're just becoming a little bit more aware of what's going on in their head and maybe that's having a, an effect. Yeah. I think it, hypnosis is, is a really tricky one. And, you know, my, my main message, I guess today is um, uh, um, I'm a skeptic, I'm the editor of a magazine called skeptical inquirer. And so I start with most things from point of skepticism, but I'm not such a rigid you know, and I don't think skepticism should be so rigid that we just automatically reject everything that we don't quite understand. And so I'm trying to be an open-minded skeptic and uh, I'm skeptical of even short-term psychodynamic therapy, but I'm trying to learn more. I'm skeptical of, of hypnotherapy, but I'm trying to learn more and I'm open to being convinced and, and, and I've never used psychodynamic therapy. I've never used hypnosis in therapy, but you know, uh, there could be evidence that would come out that could still convince me. And I think that's an important message in, in skepticism is to at least be open to some of these ideas. Well, that is a great note uh, to go out on. Uh, we covered we co covered a lot of ground today. And uh, thank you very much for coming on today, uh, Stephen Hupp. Thanks so much for having me. Stephen, visit skepticalinquire.org or purchase one of his books wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>